0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Just want to remind folks that that we have this practice at the center. You probably have noticed, even if you're new, back in 1993 when we started the program, we Decided not to charge for programs because we wanted to fall into line with this ancient practice of keeping things simple and protecting the community by not putting a price on the activities that we do here. So what that means is that we agree to participate in the circle of giving and receiving actually much harder than if there were just a fee or suggested donation, because it means we practice when we come to Common Ground, we practice receiving it freely, no strings attached. And it's, I don't know about you, but those of us like me that are controlling by nature, by personality, it feels like a setup for me to receive a free gift, like, well, what do they want back? But that's not the point. It's like, no, it's a free gift. So we have to let it, the practice is, we let it touch our heart. And until it is actually a cause for happiness. And then if you volunteer to help take care of the place, ground has very little paid staff. There's myself, a half-time office manager, a one-day-a-week bookkeeper, and everything else is done by volunteers. Or if you want to contribute to the center, our budget is about a year. But all of that just arises because people give freely. And then to find your way of participating, giving back, whether it's through money or volunteering your time, you see what makes you happy. If you don't give back in any way, not even with just good wishes for the community, then things will feel a little tight. It won't feel good in your heart. If you give too much, it won't feel good either. It will feel out of balance, given your other responsibilities. So that's why we don't have suggested donations. It's really for everybody to reflect on how can I show up and receive this in a way that's enlivening and makes me happy because it's a free gift, not a guilt trip, no strings attached, and how can I fearlessly allow myself to give back in a way that's enlivening and makes me happy? And we don't even look, you know, we do keep track just so people know at the end of the year how much they've contributed. If you contribute by credit card or check, if you contribute by cash, of course, we don't keep track of it. And you'll get a letter at the end of January every year just letting you know. And if you want to know any more specifics, you can see me or see any of our leaders connect with the office at some point. Or there is a sheet of paper that describes it a little bit more on the table where the Donation Bowl is. So we've been looking at this very potent teaching, the Four Noble Truths, now for a month and a half already. And I've been giving this caveat at the beginning of these talks, that the Buddha didn't lead with the teachings of the Four Noble Truths. Normally, when he would just meet a, a crowd of people, People who weren't necessarily professional spiritual seekers, but just people wanting to be more happy in life, he would start by helping them understand that they live in a lawful universe, and if you want to be happy, even on this very basic, uh, self-centered way, like I just I don't care about freedom, I just want to be happy, you know, I just want a nice life. So I want to know, basically what we mean by that is, I want to know how it all works. How do I set in motion the causes and conditions that lead to happiness? So he would address people where they were at. He says, okay, you want to be happy. Well, out of habit, you might think if you're stingy, you know, if you cheat, if you take things that aren't yours, if you get aggressive to get what you want, that you'll get happy. But if you pay attention in an honest way, you'll see no, that doesn't actually lead to happiness. So, you know, the dist- distillation of what we all find, you know, the Buddha would teach about the happiness that comes from non stinginess, being someone who's cultivating contentedness and generosity. Even on this self centered level, it like works. You want to be happy? Try being little by little more generous and more content with what you have and you'll find yourself being happier. Or you want to be even happier? Cultivate a reverence for life, non-harming. Even with our words. Normally we think of like ethical conduct as this big low like I have to be good because my mom said I have to be good or the culture says, or oh, I don't want people to think I'm bad, so I'll stop gossiping, or I'll won't act out my anger because I don't want to be seen as somebody who's bad. But from the way the Buddha taught, coming in line with sort of the basic uh, commitment to non-harming, reverence for life, isn't a big should. We should, you know, refrain from harming others. No, it's really on this simple ego-based level we're happier when we make this commitment not to harm. And to the degree we justify harming others, even if in, we do it in unconscious way, ways, which unfortunately, I think it's true to say, we all uh, unconsciously are harming other beings, living beings, animals. Consciously and unconsciously, right? We live, most of us live with privilege. And by living with privilege means that we're mostly unconsciously taking advantage of those with less privilege. It's like, you know, we have to be pretty conscious, pretty attentive about like the kind of clothes we buy and where those clothes were manufactured and how were those people treated. So we get a great deal. But what what causes for suffering are we contributing to, even by something as simple as you know, contributing by purchasing this product? Let alone all the other ways that we consciously and unconsciously throw people out of our hearts because they're different than we are. They look different, they have a different sexual orientation, they they push our buttons because we don't understand them. So we have all kinds of ways of uh, being violent and being causing harm that we use because we think it makes us feel safe. But actually, any of these boundaries, however we act out aggressiveness and violence and harming, however subtle it is, first and foremost, as much as it causes harm out in the world, in our own heart, those boundaries, those divisions, throwing people out of our heart, it hurts. It's stressful. It takes psychic work to think somebody doesn't belong in our heart. And I think that's true even with other animals, let alone other human beings. So, <clears throat> the, the Buddha taught these Four Noble Truths as a way of going beyond some of the basic ignorance we live with just because of our conditioning. We have to appreciate that um, we don't know how to be happy. So we first learn how to be happy, and then the more we just get the basic lawfulness, stinginess doesn't work, generosity works. Rationalizing, causing others harm in order to get what we want doesn't actually lead to our happiness. It, it leads to a heaviness in the mind, a tightness in the mind. It doesn't really work. It takes a lot of work at denying the harm we're causing. Distraction is stressful. So once we get relatively good at just the basic moral lawfulness generosity, contentedness, non-harming, and we start getting some of the fruit of living in that according to the law. Like a lot of times we think this law is relative. But in the way the Buddha understood his own mind, in the way that we can understand our own mind, we can directly see that non-harming is less stressful And whenever we justify, feel like we can justify being mean or being stingy. Because we can feel, notice and feel directly what does it feel like. Like I see this all the time with my wife. Like all the little, you know, mostly subtle, sometimes more obvious, but, you know, ways that I close my heart down, that I judge her or push her down, you know, with my attitude, afraid of her afraid of sort of being open being vulnerable you know I can notice directly how that's stressful let alone the suffering it might be causing her I see directly how it's causing me suffering and when I'm more fearless and willing to be exposed and willing to know that I don't know to be humble and willing to let the relationship be alive in a mystery and unknown and undefined and willing to like let go of like what's mine versus what's hers and like these sort of fixed boundaries you know it's so much more liberating it's so much more freeing to live in that kind of world So once we get relatively good at that, then the Buddha would teach the Four Noble Truths. He's basically, uh, it's a refinement of the basic lawfulness. So the basic lawfulness is from an ego point of view, heavy-duty self-centeredness is stressful. Relaxing that self-centeredness feels better, even from an ego point of view. And then the Four Noble Truths is just the refinement of that basic principle to the nth degree which is basically the first of these liberating insights the first noble truth is understanding a little more more and more deeply the very nature of experience itself like why it is that the self-centered point of view doesn't work because the self-centered point of view is sort of based on the idea that I, the sense of me, can get what I need to be safe or happy in the world of experience. And so this insight, this first set of liberating insights, is understanding that the world of experience, and let's just start with the best experiences, the most pleasant experiences we can have or have had in our lives, even those very pleasant very fulfilling experiences, which we sometimes get in life, are limited in the sense that they don't provide a fixed, permanent happiness. We've had a lot of nice experiences, at least some of us have, and yet our happiness isn't secure, is it? So what's that about? What has that taught us about experience? It's a basic miscalculation that we've made because of our cultural conditioning where we think that the world of experiences are here to make me happy. But you see what an arrogant, self-centered point of view that is? That the world, which is this great swirl of causes and conditions and all these experiences that are coming and going, to imagine that somehow the purpose of those experiences, like a January day, that we have in terms of weather or the fact that we're all gathered at Common Ground Meditation Center on Sunday night to think that this experience is here to provide me happiness. No, no. It's just the arising of many, many innumerable causes and conditions. It isn't here to make us happy or unhappy. It's not personal. Whatever this is that we're all experiencing in our own way, it's not here to make anybody happy or to make anybody unhappy. It's just an experience that's being known. So the first noble truth is the beginning of a radical shift on how what we take the world to be. The world is here to make me happy, to provide the ground for my happiness versus The world is just the world. The world of experience is just that. It isn't more than what it is. Experience is coming and going. Some are pleasant, some are unpleasant, some are neutral. And it isn't less than what it is. But we don't turn it into a star in our personal story. You know, this experience. Oh wait, this isn't the experience I wanted. I expected. Because we think somehow experience should fit the story we have. But it just fits its own lawfulness, the experiences, the circumstances, internal, external, that come our way. It's just the play of circumstance, internal, external. So the three insights in this first liberating truth that I've talked about now for a couple of weeks is there is dukkha. <coughs> there is this basic uncertainty, limitedness, unsatisfactoriness, inexperience. It's not about being bad or good. It's just built into the fabric. It should be understood. It has been understood. So there are three insights that you can notice in your own experience. Like that first intuitive sense. Oh, it's limited. You might be sitting in your house that you've really worked or your apartment that you really worked at making nice, and you might just get the sense no matter how nice I make it, its tendency is to take more and more work. It's not static, like, okay, I'm there, it's done. We might imagine that, but when the mind is more sensitive and truthful, we see no. It keeps changing, it keeps manifesting or expressing uncertainty and change. Even on the level of dust, it starts to get dusty. Even if we lock the doors and don't let anybody, including ourselves, in so that we don't mess it up, still it needs work. It's the same with relationships. It's not like we get there and then, oh, no. And so when the mind intuits that, that's when we reckon, oh, there is dukkha there is this fundamental uncertainty insecurity limitedness in experience and then we the next insight is to really see how relevant it is like how important it is not to miss that because if we miss it we misinterpret what life is about and we seek our happiness in ways that are actually stressful we seek happiness in experiences can't deliver happiness. They deliver momentary waves of pleasure if we're fortunate enough, but always leaving us longing, wanting more, another wave of pleasure, and another and another. So first the mind intuits the limitedness of experience, then it it realizes it's an inside, like a light bulb going out. How relevant the unsatisfactoriness of experience is. Now this is sort of unusual. Like some of you right now maybe are falling in love or in that bloom, blooming stage of a relationship where it, the possibilities are there. So how liberating it would be in that stage of, of a relationship to be contemplating, to be honestly aware of the limitations of the relationship. Without being negative about it. Like you're not putting a negative spin, it's you're removing a positive spin. And you're just seeing it is what it is. So, And I'll talk about this in a moment, about uh, we have to see the experience of gratification. Like when we meet somebody we like or when we get the food we want or we get to go to bed at night after a busy day. We want to really let the pleasantness of that touch the heart in order to understand what gratification is. It is something. If it wasn't something, we wouldn't constantly be pursuing pleasant sense experiences. So there's something to a pleasant experience. But it's not what we imagine it is. We superficially imagine it's going to make me happy. But where's the evidence? We've had a lot of pleasant experiences. Where's the happiness we've won? It's like sand through the fingers. It's just a momentary pleasantness followed by a sense of somebody needing more pleasantness or not wanting that pleasantness to go away. So again, the first three insights, there is dukkha. It's relevant. It should be understood. And then the third it has been understood. So for each of the, you know how Buddhism is, it's very systematic because it was an oral tradition for many centuries. So all these things are sort of systematized. So as we contemplate naturally in daily life, also in our formal sits, as we contemplate the limited nature of any experience, whatever happens to be arising, a thought, a sensation, whatever, we see it's limited, it's ephemeral, it's uncertain appearance. We notice it, we, under, we sort of really connect with the unsatisfactoriness, how that experience, this present moment experience, isn't, can't deliver satisfaction in the way that I really want, that unshakable release. Okay, now I got it. Now I'm happy. And I don't have to be the one trying to be happy anymore. Because that's actually the release relief we want, isn't it? I want to be done trying to be happy and actually be happy, right? But all we get is being the one who wants to be happy. On the cusp of being happy, if I just could get my meditation act together, I'd be happy, you know? Or if I can just get home and in bed, I'll be happy Or make this relationship work or get out of this relationship or find that right job. There is dukkha. It should be understood. It has been understood. So this is the first step. And these are powerful insights that we develop gradually. Is just getting honest about the nature of experience. And then when we have that stability, that honesty, you could even say, Non reactivity, then it opens us up to the second three insights under the second noble truth, the second set of three insights. So the first noble truth is there is dukkha. The second is there's a cause. So there is stress and there's a cause. Life is challenging and there's a reason it's challenging and the reason is here, not it's challenging because my partner's not perfect or January weather isn't like it is in the Caribbean. We always, you know, superficially we externalize the cause of suffering or stress. But with the second noble truth, with these liberating, these next three liberating insights, we're seeing that what we experience, the stress we experience, the feeling of being burdened by life, by experience, it's right, the cause is right here in the heart. We think when someone is insulting or someone is being obnoxious or bad things happen to us, it seems like that's the cause for my heart being burdened. But actually, it's more subtle and personal, the cause for suffering. So when we make peace with the limited nature of experience, then that stability allows us to see, and it's an insight, remember, there is a cause. So it's the beginning, like, oh, from this place, like one of the reasons I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that we're using the mindfulness of breathing instructions during the guided sits these next several weeks, the past weeks and next several weeks, is to emphasize calm. Because when the mind is really calm and peaceful, easeful, then when we start to worry about Monday or when we start to compare ourselves to another person, Or think we're better than, or you know, whatever. That self-centered activity that takes birth in the mind. So we're relatively quiet, and then out of because of the force of habit, we start to get involved in self-centered activity. Right? This is a typical moment in meditation practice. Right? Some calm, and then some. Because of the force of habit, some self-centered activity, but the contrast from the calm to the beginning of that self-centered activity is very instructive. And this is where we see the second noble truth. Oh, there is a cause. It should be abandoned. It has been abandoned. So these are the next set of three insights. You actually notice these three events. There is a cause. So it's just this basic correlative um, insight where you see that what the mind is doing right now Getting attached to a thought, an image has arisen in the mind. Why did that person say that to me? And then, that's just a thought. But when the thought, when the mind, when wisdom you could say isn't strong, and the mind misunderstands a thought, why did that person say that to me earlier today? Well, you know, What was that about? Right. So I'm starting, it's feeling personal. So this is the where the mind sees, oh, this is the cause. It's the taking personally this, like in this case, this desire to know, like, uh, what's going on here? Like, there's a threat here. Somebody doesn't like me. Somebody's judging me. Somebody doesn't think I'm good. I'm a nice person. I feel threatened. So we start to take that threat personally. We get identified or attached. We crave security, you know. We crave the advantage. How can I convince them I'm not that way? Or how can I get even with them if I want revenge? So it's the process we call clinging or grasping or craving. So there's some stickiness in the mind. And we start to, just through correlation, associate that when the heart or mind or heart gets burdened by life, feels oppressed, heavy, There's always grasping there. The mind is identified, attached, taking personally something that arose in the heart or mind. So there was some thought, some image, some idea, and the grasping. So this is a subtle but important point. It's not thought that's the problem. The problem is the habit to take thought to be more than what it is. That's what we mean by grasping, or attaching, or identifying, or clinging. It's the stickiness to thought that causes the suffering. So first we see the cause, then the next insight is the mind recognizes this should be abandoned. That's not the same as hating attachment. right? Hating attachment is just more of the same. Like we think we're stupid because we're attached. So we've just constructed the sense of me who's bad because I'm attached. It's just another weight, another burden in the heart. The second insight is really wisdom in the mind sees that the identification or the attachment is unskillful. It's unnecessary. It's dysfunctional. But it's not a negative judgment like bad it's just understanding it lawfully remember the way the buddha taught is whatever this is we call our human life it's a natural process so that was a basic expression of his insight his awakening is it's all natural process all natural processes so then his articulation to help other people was well how describe this experience we all experience of being a somebody who's suffering, who's stressed, right? which is our existential experience, how to describe it in terms of natural processes. So he's describing with the second noble truth how it is that it feels so personal when it's just actually a natural process. So there is this thought or this experience. And then there's this habit of the mind to construct through what we call attachment, the sense it's happening to me. It could be something simple like you're sitting here and you're feeling a little hungry. Just because we're hungry doesn't mean there's suffering. But if my mind notices the sensations of hunger and constructs a me who wants food a me who feels personally oppressed by how long this program is lasting, (laughs) right? Or personally leaning forward to the idea of it being done and being able to go home and get some food. Then all of a sudden, I've, this mind, has constructed suffering, tension. We feel burdened. It's like, this isn't it. It is when I get into the fridge at home. Right? And so... Whenever we have this idea of becoming somebody like the guy who gets this later, then this is not okay. This just happens to be our life. That's not okay. And that's the dukkha we experience here and now. So <clears throat> that suffering is due to the identification, taking the sensations of hunger personally. Or taking, like if we have a painful memory, we take that experience that happened in the past personally, like me right here and now is personally suffering, personally burdened by what that person said to me back then or what that person didn't do back then. And this is so liberating to see there is a cause and to recognize this second insight in the second noble truth, it should be abandoned it's an insight that it can be abandoned. Like, because it's the activity is here and now, the attachment is an activity. The mind is doing it right now. So it just needs to cease doing that. But we can't, it can't be an ego move like me. Stop it. I always make the joke, maybe some of you even saw this. This is Bob Newhart. Some of you might remember him, a really well-known comedian from long ago, but back before he had his TV show in the 60s, he used to do the skit of being a uh, psychiatrist. and uh, And people would come in and ask, you know, go through all these problems, on and on, and he would sort of act this all out. And then, as a psychiatrist, his line would be, stop it! <laughs> <laughs> and that's sort of like, when we see the grasping, we see our mind getting tight in all the little and big ways it does. That might be our first move, you know, just to yell at ourselves, stop it, don't you see what you're doing? But I'm sure you've noticed that doesn't help. So the second, no, the second insight is we recognize the, dis, the dysfunction of the grasping, of the attachment. We see the heart getting tight. We see the heart getting identified but we don't get identified with the identifying process. You see? You've got to draw the line somewhere. And the line is to see it, but not to continue it. You've got to see it. You have to be intimate. This is why this practice is so hard. You have to see the mind doing what leads to stress, what leads to the crunch, without crunching, because you're crunching. There is the crunching because you're watching it, but you're not going to crunch because you're crunching. You're not going to judge. You're not going to get attached to the idea that you shouldn't be attached. You're just going to be intimate. This is what we mean by being mindful. We're being mindful of attachment. We're being mindful of anger. We're being mindful of greed. We're being mindful of impatience. We're being mindful of irritation or being mindful of envy or jealousy or comparing mind or judging mind. It is possible for the mind to be clearly aware, balanced, loving, forgiving, patient until the moment when the grasping, the identification, ceases on its own. Why does it cease? Because we're not feeding it. Because remember, the moment that the mind gets attached. That attachment is moment to moment to moment. In the past I've been really attached, right? But I have to keep renewing that attachment to sustain the suffering. All it takes is one moment of not renewing that identification or attachment and then the suffering of that attachment, the stress of that attachment, ceases. So in Buddhism we talk a lot about cessation. Because this is a natural process, if the causes for stress aren't there, the stress then ceases. Now here's what's tricky about this. Mentally, the identification can cease in a moment. But the Reverberation of the stress will continue in the body a little longer. So, let's say you've been really obsessing about what this person said to you and wanting to get even and feeling, you know, oh, poor me, and, you know, all these sort of different takes and the, the different obsessive takes <clears throat> on this feeling of being hurt. Taking that feeling of being hurt really personally, obsessing, obsessing. And then finally, because of your practice, a moment of spaciousness, mindfulness arises. And you just see very clearly the dysfunction of this obsession. And it just pops, like a bubble pops. And you just cease doing it. It's almost like you notice you're holding a hot pan and you just let go. Oh my God, that's, that's hot. And it just drops. But... Because you've been obsessing for 15, 20 minutes, let's say, the tension in the body doesn't cease as quickly as the mental activity. The mental activity can cease in an instant, but the reverberation of that tension of obsessing will reverberate in the body for a while. So you have to be willing, when the activity in the mind ceases, you have to be willing to continue to feel what you feel in the body as unpleasant as it might be because if you don't see it mindfully feel it mindfully then the ouch in the body will make you wonder what's going on here oh yeah that person said that to me and then you get reattached because the yucky feeling in the body triggers the mental activity in the same way the mental activity triggers the tension in the body so the body and the mind unfortunately have this feedback loop and it's because of this lapse where the mind is more quick but the body reverberates. It's just slower. right? The karma, the uh, fruit of action is, is expressed differently in the body than in the mind. We might have had trauma when we were a kid. We might have had a lot of good therapy. We might have let go of a lot of the confused, convoluted mental processes because of that early trauma. You know, I had to drink powdered milk when I was growing up. That was one of the more traumatic things. (laughs) And Wonder Bread. And, um, you know, I might have processed the pain, but it might live on in my body, the reverberations of, you know, whatever I experienced as a kid. So even though we might be relatively good at abandoning the mental patterns, like abandoning the obsessive tendencies, we have to be willing to be patient with what remains in the body. So the three insights in the uh, second noble truth, so the first noble truth is there is dukkha, there is stress. The experience is limited and unsatisfactory. Even the nicest experiences are limited and ultimately unsatisfactory. There's a cause for the stress we experience. And so the three insights here is there is a cause, it should be abandoned, it has been abandoned. So there are three specific insights where we start to catch the beginning of attachment identification. We see it as an activity of mind. We see its dysfunction, like it should be abandoned. This isn't helping anybody. There's nothing helpful that comes from attachment. This is the basic error. We assume that there's some function for attachment, for craving. But when we look closely and honestly with a balanced mind, we see that attachment, identification, craving, it's never functional. It's only stressful. It doesn't make us more functional in doing what needs to be done in the world. And then the third insight is to catch a moment when it ceases. And this is something you can do in a sit. You could be sitting and you get a little tickle on your face or an itch or just some compulsion to move that's unpleasant. And you could either move your body, no crime in that, or even better, just be with the sensations and be with the desire to move. And if that desire is taken personally, then there's some attachment, like we feel like I'm the one who needs to move. So that's the beginning of that obsessive, stressful tendency. When there's identification with the desire, we can't help it to feel the sensations of the itch. And we can't even help the thought, the desire, I want to move, because that's just nature. But the conditioned response then to construct a me who feels personally oppressed until I move or who thinks I'll be so happy when I move, that we practice sitting with. Okay, that's just what that is. It's just that thought, those sensations. And if you can just be patient with that, you'll notice that the craving will cease without having to gratify the desire to move. And we have to have this insight probably thousands, ten thousands, tens of thousands of times, little and big ways, where we get all the way through that craving cycle without taking it personally and acting on it, obsessing about it, and we notice because we're not feeding it that it ceases. And you can imagine how liberating it is not to feel that every desire that arises we have to act out. And in a way, we know this unconsciously already. I mean, <clears throat> we're attracted to some people or we're attracted to some things, but we don't take it too personally. It's like, oh yeah, that's just what the mind does. You know, we don't <clears throat> pick it up. And run with it. Either because we're afraid to, but hopefully because we have some wisdom. Like, that's just suffering. Why would I do that? You know, it's like, I'm sure you do this in your own particular way. Oh God, if I won the lottery, you know, or if somebody, even though I don't know any rich people, if somebody left me, (laughs) you know, $2 billion, what would I do? What could I do? You know, but then we catch ourselves. It's like picking up a catalog and looking through the catalog. It's like, like why am I doing this? Everything I look at, I have to, do I want that? How would I use that? It's like we're playing with that. It's suffering, but it makes us seem alive because we've equated the pain of craving with the experience of being alive. And equanimity becomes synonymous with being dead. It's very interesting. So we have to, you know, it's like people who are addicted to a lot of sugar or a lot of caffeine or, you know, whatever, you're using a lot of hot sauce in your food. It's like then you eat other kinds of food and it's like, that doesn't taste right. And it's a little bit like us human beings where we have played in the world of craving and fear and other contracted states for a long time. And it's this great tragic irony that we're suspicious of peacefulness and ease and love, a kind of generosity of the heart. And we're much more familiar and comfortable with a stinginess and that inward gravitational pull and that conspiratorial and neurotic and hungry in the Buddhist uh, mythology they have a hungry ghost Uh, being with a belly that's huge, an appetite that's huge but the mouth is the size of a pinhole. So the idea is that you can never satisfy your appetite you just don't have the apparatus to satisfy your appetite and this is an image for the way our mind is always thinking that some experience is going to do it for me and never quite being satisfied and always hungry for more and more. Until we get so frustrated, we become a different kind of hungry ghost where we just want to be done. But it's just more of the same. But now we're craving to be done. I'm just tired of being a human being. I'm tired of craving. But that's just craving extinction, wanting to be done with it all. Or we could crave being the saint who's above it all, right? So there's all kinds of ways we justify this tightness of the heart. And the second noble truth is really showing us the way to go beyond. There is letting go. But letting go comes from getting right in the middle of dukkha and with that evenness of mind, getting right in the middle of the cause of dukkha, the arising of attachment, seeing the birth of craving. Because remember, if there's craving in the mind or heart, it's happening now. We're not craving because two years ago we started it. If there's craving, if our heart feels burdened, tight, or upset, it's because right now the mind is getting identified. It's taking something personally. Right now. So the cessation can happen right now. No matter how much you might think the Buddhist teachings are sort of morbid or sort of negative, they're really pointing to the possibility of real freedom, the heart's unshakable release, a very buoyant and loving enlivened way of being in this messy world. Not because we get what we want, but because we realize the heart, a mind, or a way of being that's not dependent on circumstances. One of the nice things, I know it's sort of ironic to say, one of the nice things about the Holocaust <laughs> is that there were some people, or probably more than we know of, but some people whose stories survived the Holocaust, so in that sort of stereotypically worse situation you could imagine, who actually came alive in it, Right? So instead of retreating into states of craving, why me, or whatever you, you know we can imagine our mind getting caught in, some story that we'd get caught in, and found a way to this natural generosity of the heart, non-clinging, non-grasping, not personalizing the experience. And so what's left is that natural generosity. That is the nature of the mind when craving has ceased, when attachment has ceased, the mind, what is left? Well, that natural generosity of the mind and heart. Living for the benefit of all beings. But it's not an idea. It's not some you know, ideal that we're trying to live up to. It's just what's left. When there isn't self-centered activity, that's what's left. It's nature. Our personality is nature but now without self-centered activity, obsessive activity, well, then the heart is alive and light, buoyant, and free of greed, anger, and delusion. So I'll leave it here. We have a little time for comments or questions. And next week, we'll move to the third noble truth, which is uh, more reflection on this experience of cessation or nibbana or freedom and how the Buddha talked about that. But any experiences from your own life about craving and the cessation of craving, how you experienced it or questions you have. Yeah, say your name again. Uh, Jake. So, like, if you've been like 20 minutes or so, maybe like you're saying, sometimes when I finish sitting, I still have that physical, kind of like a rough day, a physical feeling. Uh, Is that just like not sitting long enough? No, 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 that sounds like really, that's really good instincts to take some time at the beginning of a set, Even before you sit, you could take some time to help the body and mind to put down whatever loads you picked up from the day, hot bath, mindful exercise, exercise. Whatever works basically, but be really practical and pragmatic about it. But then when you sit, as you thought, Jake, it's really useful to. Because by default, our attitude is going to go toward the common denominator, which is greed, anger, some version of greed, anger, and delusion. So why not specifically cultivate a more positive attitude of gratitude, of basic goodwill or kindness, compassion? So it's a really useful way to spend two or three minutes at the beginning of the set. You can do it in some of the traditional Buddhist ways of cultivating a wholesome attitude, or you can be creative in your own way. But it's really good. I mean, one of the easiest things to reflect on once you've sort of settled into your posture is just to realize it isn't easy being a human being with a conditioned mind, with this swirl of causes and conditions that we're not in control of. And just to repeat the phrase a few times, it isn't easy being a human being. I care about this life. I care about this body. I care about this heart. It isn't easy being a human being. May this heart be at ease with these circumstances. So you see, instead of, oh poor me, we're starting to connect with this natural generosity to the heart. I'm healthy this mind or heart is healthy enough to be willing to care for this life instead of hating somebody or you know whatever wanting to get even wanting to disappear because it's too much and we the body experience often is unpleasant because we live in stressful ways so then when we settle down and sit quietly What's left is the reverberation of the stress we've been sort of mirroring back on the body all life long. So we have to be willing. As unpleasant as it might be, it's the only way. Settling into the reality of the present moment is the only way for things to unwind. Running from it is how we wind it up. And it just becomes more and more unbearable. Thanks, Jake. Time for maybe one more thought. Yeah, I don't know your name. Gary. Gary. Uh, uh, truths happen naturally but it to be, um, Basically, yeah. And, you know, it is helpful to learn the maps <clears throat> intellectually, to have a sense of the terrain, because it just makes it as we cultivate a more steady, continuous mindful presence in life and in our formal sitting times then these maps that we've learned intellectually and then thought about them so we're contemplating them we know them in a sense intuitive, beginning to know them intuitively then we begin to see how the maps line up with our actual experience non-conceptual experience so the map is conceptual But what we're doing in general in spiritual life is we're transforming our way of being or we're transforming our view. So we learn the map first conceptually and then we see it directly or intuitively. And that then changes in a deeper level what we take the world to be. It's now more and more in line with the way it really is. So wrong view is when we impose on experience this self-centered idea that there's me and there's the world happening to me. And I keep, because it's a strong idea, I keep projecting that view on the world. and So now we get a different map. It's a natural process. This is how suffering arises. This is how it ceases. And we look through that view, even though it's just a concept we've learned. We practice seeing the world and there's a, a point when the direct experience lines up. The map actually helps us connect with direct experience without the wrong view. And then we experience the freedom of the mind not experiencing things from this idea of separation, which is the freedom the Buddha points to. The heart of the mind realizing the world not from wrong view, a sense of separation, but from no view, you could say, or right view, which is no fixed view. We're we're letting nature define how things are, the actual activity of nature, versus our ideas or our, our expectations. That's not defining our reality. We don't even realize how much our concepts, our ideas, define our experience. But it's really the way it is. And you can catch this in dreams. When you have a particular dream, that's a reality, right? Well, no, it's just a thought. But that's how it is in non dreaming times, too. Our ideas of who I am, what it means to be a common ground on Sunday night, what's good, what's bad, this is really imprisoning. These ideas are imprisoning. Yeah. And we need to leave it here. Next week I'll leave a little bit more time because um, there's not as much to say about the third noble truth, the cessation or experiences of freedom. But it would be nice to hear from people about the whole cycle from seeing dukkha, seeing the cause, and experiencing some freedom in life. So let's just take a few seconds and let go the words. Just enough time to take a breath or two together.